0: Welcome to the Mindbeat podcast by Effective School Solutions. I'm your host, Duncan Young, CEO of Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm your co host, Lane Whitaker, Senior Director of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: The MindBeat podcast is the definitive source for all topics related to school-based mental health. From sharing best practices to highlighting innovative school districts to keeping track of legislation, MindBeat is the go-to source for educators and administrators looking to implement a mental health care continuum. Together, we can make a difference in school-based mental health care and in the lives of students, families, and educators. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Mindbeat podcast. I'm Duncan Young, CEO at Effective School Solutions.
1: And I'm Lane Whitaker. I'm Vice President of Professional Learning at Effective School Solutions.
0: We have got a great show lined up for you today. Um, Brian Cody, who is a Managing Director at Berkeley Research Group, kind of a leading uh, healthcare Uh, advisory firm is going to be with us today. We're going to cover a lot of things with Brian. First of all, he has an incredibly interesting and diverse background. Uh, He's been a journalist, a healthcare journalist. He uh, does a lot of advisory work for organizations in the healthcare space right now. Uh, And one of the things that we're really going to focus on with him today that will be of interest to our uh, education and school district listeners will be this fundamental question of what is the role of uh, commercial insurance, Medicaid, and helping to fund and sustain school-based mental health services, and I know he's got a lot of uh, uh, great insights on on that. So we're excited to hear shortly from Brian uh, Lane. How are you doing?
1: I'm well. I'm well. I'm battling the snow today, but uh, but I'm good. How about you? I'm
0: um, looking outside right now. It's coming down fast and furious. We need to make we need to make a, a game time decision to switch from in person to doing this kind of on Zoom. But it's uh, great to. Great to see you. And uh, how's your January going so far? Uh, I I always find January and February to be—they're probably my two least favorite months of the of the year. Like, is that is that true for you?
1: I would agree. I I start to get a little seasonal affective disorder stuff going on. So this is a mental health podcast. I I definitely feel that. I, I need some sun. I'm solar powered. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm doing some traveling for work next week in sunny California. So I am craving that sun. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely solar powered. I'm I'm more and more aware of that the older I get. So this time of yeah. year is kind of.
0: <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is not a good sporting month either, right? It's kind of like, you know, baseball has not started yet. If you're a baseball fan, football, especially like you and I as Eagles fans, we, we if anyone listening you probably knows how that ended up not, not a, not a pretty sight for uh, yeah. fans of the birds, but uh, how are you, how are you feeling? Are you kind of licking your wounds, kind of pushed? I don't st- even want to talk about posterior. it. I don't,
1: I don't want to talk about it. I want to just move Let's on. Move on. Let's move on. I, I, it's too much. We're talking about our mental health again. That's just going to bring me down. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, you know what? It it was fun while it lasted. We'll we'll see what happens next year. I think it's unfortunate we're we're probably gonna lose a lot of veterans to retirement and it may be a, a bit of a rebuilding time. So just sort of bracing and preparing for that. But um but yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Thanks, Eagles, so though. Thanks, thanks for the good times this season.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of with you. It's kind of, my, and I kind of now regret kind of bringing it up because it just kind of makes me, you know, angry, upset, a little bit bitter. Like, it's just no, no. Who, who needs those negative emotions in your yeah. life? Not
1: me. I will say this though. I thought you were going in a different direction when you were talking about February, uh, January, about the sports thing. I was thinking for myself. Like, I like to run outside, and uh, I was talking to one of our um, district partner um, uh, sales district partnership people yesterday and they were saying that I they, they found a new thing for me I can use something called yak tract where you can put like these like spikes on your oh, sneakers yeah. Yeah. And run yeah. I was worried about the ice even though I it was, was- snow I was like, I'm going to try that so I can get back outside. I don't like to do treadmills and like ellipticals and all that, so I'm like, I might, I might try the extra. I hope I'm saying it right. <laughs> I, I did find some on Amazon, and uh, we'll see how quickly that can get here. <laughs> so, so I, I had that
0: exact, I had that exact experience today. I woke up. I usually do a long run on Friday mornings. It's like dark. It's icy, and and this is like the rationalization in my mind. I was like, I'll skip running because of the ice, right? Because I I could injure myself, and that would be bad. So. <laughs> So I do have a Peloton. I go down to my basement to use the Peloton today and I'm about to get on and I realized that my daughter has gotten on it last night and has gotten her little biking shoe stuck in the pedal. And so um, so what should have been a workout this morning ended up being like 30 minutes of me with an Allen wrench and a YouTube video <laughs> trying to figure out how to get the get the you know the shoe out of the pedal is not is not great. Not a great way to not not a great way to start my day.
1: I hear you. Good at YouTube University, though. It never, never fails. <laughs> yeah. and
0: plus, can I say, who goes to bed and just leaves their shoe in the pedal? How does that happen, right? Come on. Like, what are we doing here? Personal responsibility, Lane, a teachable moment as a, as a parent. Don't leave your pedal in the bike. Clean up your mess. So, But I, I digress. I digress. Um, but hey, why don't we jump into it? I, I want to get to Brian. And I know we've got a, like, a lot of great things to talk about. Um, but why don't you get us started with uh, our top three today?
1: So our top three is three, uh, top three ways to encourage kids to be more empathetic. So first, I just want to define empathy and I'm defining it as the ability to show care and concern for others, coupled with the ability to imagine what someone else might be feeling in a particular situation. So ways to cultivate that, just our top three, there are many ways, but our top three is empathize with your child. So that might include statements like, wow, my feelings would be hurt too or I can understand why you would feel that way or why that would be frustrating. I'm sorry I made you feel that way are some of those kind of comments. I think sometimes as parents we get into like, oh, I'll stop your complaining when I was a kid kind of a thing and that is the opposite of empathetic empathy. empathy. Um, so we wanna cultivate that in our kids by demonstrating empathy. Um, number two, we want to dem- demonstrate empathy for others by embracing diversity. That means providing opportunities for your children to play with children of different ethnicities, cultures, differing abilities, sexes, and so on. People who are or, who are different than them and embracing that, trying to understand what their experiences might be like, and so on. And then number three is recognize and praise empathetic behavior when you see it in your children, you have to really point it out. So examples of that might be when you see your child apologizing unprompted for hurting someone's feelings. Uh, another example might be when you see your child offer a hug when they see someone sad. I know when I was, uh, was you know a young parent and my kid was a toddler, If I was, you know, I remember actually, here's a great example. I remember coming in from the snow one day uh, and I, um, or I may have actually, that's not true. I think I left something in my car and I came down the stairs and was like, oh my gosh, and ran out the door. And my son was like, mom, are you okay? Are you okay? And he was so concerned about, you know, what had happened, why I seemed to be rushing and, and, you know, had this exclamation. So that was an example of him being empathetic. Like I'm concerned for you. Um, so those are just some ways that you can uh, are uh, examples of times you can point out when your kids are being empathetic and and praise and recognize them for that. That's it. That's product. great. I love that.
0: I love that, Lynn. So great, great stuff. And I think great, great for our both our educator and our parent listeners. And uh, uh, great list of things that we can all do to kind of support our support our kids. Let's move to the in the news. We got a great article today uh, that's pretty recent, published on December 18th, 2023 from EdSource. Um, And this article is entitled California Looks to the Health System to Sustain Mental Health Funds in Schools. And I wanted to highlight this, particularly given our guest today, because Brian... Uh, is going to talk a lot about how we kind of bring together the education system and the healthcare system collaboratively to help fund school-based uh, mental mental health. And there's a great quote here from uh, David Gordon, who's a commissioner at the Mental Health Services Oversight and Accountability Commission in California, that starts off this article. And he states the health systems and the education systems are not bound together successfully enough to make sure we engage in both prevention and treatment. So the point that this article makes is that When it comes to building a really high-functioning mental health continuum, we have this bifurcated system. All the research points to schools playing an incredibly important role, but we kind of have schools and school districts operating in their education lane. And then we have like insurance companies, you know, the the Medicaid system operating in its lane. And there are examples of kind of uh, uh, those two lanes merging. So most states have like a school-based Medicaid program kind of in place. But when it comes to the usage and utilization of commercial insurance and in, in education setting, that's a little bit kind of newer and a little bit where it's kind of like just two kind of two kind of separate worlds. So the main point of this article is that the Path of the future the way of the future is greater collaboration and figuring out kind of a fair and equitable division of funding so that both kind of the education system and the healthcare system can contribute towards the maintenance of these critical school-based mental health services so we'll we'll kind of uh, post this article kind of off on of the Mindy website encourage everybody to take a look at it uh but one of the better articles on this topic that i've seen uh that i've seen recently So, Elaine, why don't we uh, get into our conversation with Brian, and uh, would you like to introduce our guest for today?
1: Sounds good. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. We're so excited to have Brian Cody here with us today. Let me introduce our guest. Since 1994, Brian Cody has been a widely published healthcare and sociology columnist, researcher, and writer of the Behavioral Health Hour, which is a peer-reviewed journal he's published since 1999. It's about the intersection of science, sport, and policy. He's also the managing director at Berkeley Research Group, where he advises healthcare companies and has led hundreds of studies on behavioral health, including Losing Beats Winning, a 15-year tracking study into the impact of competitive youth sports on addiction, and Bet on Yourself, a new study into what influences young males to bet on sports. Brian has taught physical education in a middle school in Hartford in Connecticut since 2010. Thank you so much for being with us today, Brian. How are you? Thanks,
2: Brian. I'm good. Now I feel older now, though, but but okay. that's. Thank you for that intro. Thanks for having me. We all get that. <laughs> anytime your
0: bio has something in there that says, since a date 20 years ago, you know, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, what, what happened Uh-oh. there? So, yeah, I feel Absolutely. your pain. Uh, Well, thanks, Brian, for being with with us today. Um, Tell me about the the phys ed piece. I'm curious about that. So this is like, I know you're a very Uh, busy guy. You've got a a, a full-time role, but you're finding mm -hmm. time to go and teach phys ed at a a Hartford middle school. Ah,
2: yeah. Well, uh, I I grew up in Cadet. My dad was uh, a tennis coach and worked in athletics at University of Hartford. So, you know, when I was a kid, he used to trips me to, for $15, he'd do tennis lessons in the area um you know this is the pre gas the gas crisis of the late 1970s um maybe i was about eight years old and and i would pick up the balls at tennis lessons and like that was that was my great day i loved doing that with him and he taught athletics so i was exposed to that at an early age i think he made 15 bucks five bucks went to gas five went to um you know into his pocket and five went to the donut and grape juice he used to buy me um I I don't know at an early age athletics and after being a journalist for 10 years, you're kind of like, you're doing the story, you're writing about others. And I kind of felt that I need to actually be more active and be in the story. To some extent, my wife is a teacher in Hartford at a school. Um, It's a free and reduced lunch school called grace Academy. And that started in 2010 and they needed, they needed sports and athletics, essentially a gym class. I mean, we're talking 60 kids, all girls, fifth to eighth grade. And, um, you know, I having, having coached tennis a little bit in my past, I had at that point, let's see, we have three kids who are young at that age, now college students, but, you know, tired of coaching youth sports, which can get a little bit complicated um, and maybe not as satisfying. I'm like, oh, I could teach gym in Hartford. So essentially, a couple of days a week for the last decade. Um, that's be I've done that. And I'll say that's more rewarding than any youth sports game I've ever been at. Got it. Got it. So, yeah. so Brian, we
0: go way back in your in your background. Let's talk, you know, we mentioned 1994, but pre-1994, what were some of the formative things that kind of led you down the career path that you've gone down, which sounds like is really a great mix of, of journalism, uh, you know, research mm-hmm. into the healthcare and, and sociology fields, kind of what were some of the things that led you down that, that road
2: i i think my interest in writing and reporting probably came from um maybe from the reading the hartford current every morning and newspapers newspapers are fading in this country there's the major ones still but every morning i would read that i would read a column by alan greenberg then jeff jacobs they were the sports columnists you know we passed the different sections at breakfast um that was when we put sugar on the cereal which is sort of a no-no now for most people. But I would read that and I loved it because it was it was first-person writing. Um, and at that time, Alan Greenberg would write about the whalers and, and I just enjoyed it. And it was easier. And I took to that. I wasn't really a reader. I struggled with comprehension. I was in a remedial class, but I could read that. Um, and I loved it. And I think by the time I was in high school, I remember the English class. Ray Smith was a psychologist who taught our our English class, and I took an advanced placement class, somehow got in there because I thought I needed it for college. And Dr. Smith had us read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Um, I didn't read it. I read two pages because I wasn't really a reader, but he gave an assignment to say, write about a time you felt invisible. And I'm like, okay, I could do that. And I wrote this paper. I got an A. I wrote about a time I played golf and I kind of felt Invisible out there and had this success, and he knew I didn't write the book or read the book. But I think at that point he understood that my skills were maybe in writing and storytelling, and I felt more comfortable there. And I had a role in the class, and so from that point, really through college and then after school, I thought I like telling stories. Um, I could, I'm good at putting words together. I'm maybe not great at other things, and I found my niche through that and got into journalism um, at at school.
0: That's great. That's fantastic. Thanks for for sharing that that journey.
1: So I'm going to kind of make a hard shift here to another Mm. topic. One of the biggest things that our listeners are interested in is funding sustainability for school-based mental health. So I'm curious what your assessment is of how districts can best fund these initiatives. What do you think, Brian?
2: Ah, that's a big question.
1: Um, It is a big question.
2: Well, (laughs) I, well, I think a couple of things. I think it, I think the insurance industry has to step up. I think you maybe have some questions about that, but that is one. I, I don't think the health insurance, um, the health insurers in the U.S. have done a really good job at covering and promoting and making it easy for people to get access to mental health. Um, they're getting better at it. That would that would be one. We can get into that a bit. I I, I do think there is a lot of investment. There's a lot more grants. There's more funding for triage of mental health in this country, which is important, um, vital when you think about a crisis escalating, a uh, family in a tough situation, getting that individual, whether it's an adult or, uh, but certainly a youth into say urgent care or into the right situation so that crisis can be handled and then they can get to the, right, the right treatment. The amount of investment is, is significant if you just take the 988 system, um, I think there's another 30 million dollars in grant funding that has been requested. I might be wrong in the numbers. It's tremendous just to help fund that crisis line to make sure that youth in particular um, and teenagers have some access to something after that phone call. Because there's a real gap, I guess, in staff and in finding um, accessible services. That's just the that's just the um the US supported government 988 system. I mean the amount of private investment in triage by we were talking about sports teams before we got on the phone, by football teams, the NFL, the NBA, the NCAA around urgent care psych, particularly for youth, is significant. I believe a lot of that funding, even a portion of it, if it were pivoted to School districts and youth could be much more impactful, you know, in the throes during the moment of the 11 year old or the 15 year old who's dealing with a mental health situation, maybe something from the prior night or from their friends or for something at home or or whatever might be going on. And so I think there's almost too much investment right now in triage, which is important and not enough really at the, at the center of where the kids are. Um, for six hours a day, sometimes more. and and that's I, I will say that private that private there are examples of the private sector um, doing a nice job. I think the districts could tap into that more if, in fact, the private sector in a given state were to get behind it. I know in Texas years ago, Cook Children's, Aetna, and a few of the other Medicaid insurers all got together. I mean, they're all sort of siloed and competing. For in that case, for business from the state to serve uh, the Medicaid population. Um, at that point, there was a huge crisis with asthma, you know, misuse of inhalers, and we had a lot of ER visits with kids. And so all of those insurers got together and they put millions behind just an educational program for um, asthma. It was like a yellow, red, green little flyer. You know, when do you go to the ER? You know, what do you do? How do you how do you use this? Device. It was very simple, but it was a lot of funding that both the insurers in that case and the private sector got behind. I I think that school districts um, really need the help of private sector. Some of this funding that's flowing through urgent care and triage, and from insurers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I I don't know if if there could be funding from the academic community training programs. Um, the embedding clinicians that are in college and doing training I think that might be an an opportunity to to get more help um, there's a lot that still can be done and I know the districts need help
0: so Brian we're, we're kind of in the unique position in what we do at you know sitting at the intersection of the education world and the healthcare world so we have a chance to have conversations with both and kind of hear feedback from both I think from the education side, when, you know, they look at a situation where the number of students presented with mental health challenges is going up, I say, 5 to 10% every year, and their district budgets are going up 2 to 3% per year, I think their position would be, hey, we need more private sector, healthcare industry, insurance support for school-based services. I think the insurance kind of uh, perspective on that would be, yes, we acknowledge and recognize that, that kind of we, we need to you know, help fund this and that there might be kind of an ROI on that you know with respect to driving out higher costs of care elsewhere in the system. But you know, are you just simply trying to shift costs from the education system to the healthcare system? So I think the right mm-hmm. answer here seems like a, a sharing. It's not one or the other. It needs to be a, a kind of equitable, fair joint effort between the education system and the healthcare system how, what, are, what are the planks in the argument in terms of how you have that conversation with commercial insurance companies? How, how can that argument be made in a way that kind of resonates with them, makes sense to them, and helps them accomplish their business goals?
2: Yeah, if you're a school, I, you make a lot of good points. I, I do think it needs to be shared. If you're a school district or a company working with schools, as yours is, and you're sitting in front of the, the, the head of uh, behavioral health, and that is a rule that they have in either inside of a Medicaid plan. Keeping in mind, let's just take in, in say, New Jersey, um, let's just say it's a managed care and it's the insurer that is getting paid by the state to provide a benefit of services or commercial insurance plan. Um, let's say Edna Cigna, that many of the folks may have out there. Uh, I think, number one, you got to understand what they're really struggling with. They've had to react since the Affordable Care Act. We're talking 10 years ago. Um, 2014, and all of the mental health parity, they've had to react to expand coverage. Um, And they've done it in a a bit of a reactive way. They've tried to draw in therapists of all types. Um, They've struggled to get psychiatrists and psychologists. There's not enough of them. They've struggled with child psychiatry and therapists. Um, They've tried to use telehealth. This is before COVID to say, look, we're being told by regulators you know, we need to have an adequate network to serve people. Wow, telehealth can do that for us because you know one person at home could serve nine people in a day. They've been very tactical using old strategies. Candidly, a lot of them put authorization requirements on families and doctors. You know, before you get ten visits, approve. We have to approve it. Um, they they've taken this approach and it hasn't worked because what's happened is they've expanded the benefit created hurdles for people. Um, and what's happening is people aren't really getting to the right level of therapy with the right clinician who fits their needs. Um, there's delays in getting an appointment two months, three months, six months. And when they do get one, it's often with someone not quite trained in their their mental health need, particularly if it's someone who's a 15-year-old with PTSD, anxiety, and maybe an eating disorder. That's complex for a therapist who is still working toward their license to be serving. And what the insurers are, are struggling with now, and this would be important to recognize if you're in that meeting as a school district, is they're losing more therapists and psychologists from their network. They're defecting. Um, I heard the other day there was a few different therapists serving a Medicaid population in California. They took a job, I think reluctantly, But it was a well-paid job with the NCAA, a Division I sports team, a university, to serve their college athletes. So a very small group of, let's say, 75 athletes that they could serve, that's a nice salary. But we just lost, the school systems and the communities just lost two really good therapists. Um, I know the school I work at in Hartford, we have one part-time therapist, terrific for 60 kids. I think, I think the angle with the insurance plans is to say, look, we can make an impact over the course of a year, if not sooner, um, and manage the risk level um, of kids in the moment. I think a lot of the, the way the health plans think about it is very transactional. We'll pay for that visit. You'll have it the following week. You'll make progress. You'll be good. You won't have a mental health condition in two months. Like they're thinking about it the way they think about like surgical repair or right? range of motion after an injury, um, which is ridiculous. You know, it it is it does. It takes time. There are ebbs and flows, as those who work in schools know. Um, you know, and having taught their at least their physical education with adolescents. I see it every day. The success that or every other day I see, you know, the success you might have with a student one day. It's it's back to the beginning, another. I, I think the schools and the partners they have doing mental health would be wise to say we can make an impact at much lower costs, probably half the cost. And, and if there is a need for triage, get that person to a trusted resource more quickly. I, I don't think the therapy community, the networks, the telehealth, the urgent care, it's really working well. Um, I think, I think having it in the school system is a much more effective lower cost site of care. And I do think that the insurers are open to it now yeah. um, for the first time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think in, in, it, it, it seems like sometimes there's a desire to get kind of a clear rubric or almost like a decision matrix about like if A, B, and C is true, then the cost should be the responsibility of the school system. But if X, Y, and Z is true, it should be the responsibility of the healthcare plan. And I don't, I don't I don't know whether or not the world is gonna break down into lines as clean as that. In other words, can you say that you know if the student has an IEP and they're receiving a mental health service as part of that, it's the part of the school district? Well, maybe, but if you look at federals special education law actually specifically notes that commercial insurance can pay for iep services is it is it a duplication of service question if it's like if the school is the primary provider then the insurance company pays for it but if they're a secondary provider then it's not paid for so mm-hmm. what, are, what are your thoughts about the ability to break things down into a kind of rubric or a set of decision rules like that or is that trying to add too much kind of specificity and granularity onto an area that is just kind of a natural gray area and it's difficult to do that?
2: It is it is very gray. It is difficult. I think the solutions will probably be state at a state level what you might need to do as a business, mental health company serving a school in one state may need to be very different until a point, and I believe this may happen because um, it just happens in healthcare. One state says, ah, I want to follow what Maryland did. Um, I, I think what's worked, um, also has complications. There have been efforts in a number of states, and I mentioned physical education as a good analog, um, of, of grants that are provided through either through a large health insurer and each state has one very large health insurer. I think this is where the lead has to come from the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans, a grant that supports all school districts or uh, a large number of them through a pilot with a pool of funding to support mental health and it'll help fund staffing of those clinicians. It's already been tried and proven successful with play programs and physical education, kind of like your preschool, during school and after school programs and continues to be rolled out. Uh, I think that is a really simple model. It provides additional funding, it's supportive to the school districts um, it is a shared goal and it is less about the transaction of um, a mental health visit. Um, you know, here's your copay. You have to get authorized. It's just as simple. We recognize that insurance needs to support it. The foundations they have can do that through this grant funding and the schools can then deploy that funding as they see fit. I mean, there might need to be some shared effort. I think that that asthma example I mentioned is a good analog of, you had every insurance plan on the same page we have a crisis with asthma let's create this solution and fund it i i think that is one measure of opportunity that hasn't been um, taken advantage of enough the, the other the other i think we've spoken about this is is a concept of if the right now if the insurers both medicaid and commercial are spending at times 20, 30, $40,000 every couple months on kids to get outpatient services after school or sometimes in lieu of school for let's say a couple weeks, um, getting mindfulness, yoga, therapy, getting their homework done. Um, it's a significant amount of money. And I've heard from school districts who say these are great, but then the kids come back and it unravels, um, you know, the the faculty haven't been trained about what's happened. Um, not everybody's on the same page, and the kid struggles. these These outpatient models um, have a role, but they cost two to three times more than what it would cost to have these therapists in the schools. And I think the insurance companies, both government and commercial, are um are now more at least open to say, as long as you meet some basic metri- metrics for us, that you, um, number one, are willing to document what you're doing. We realize we can't maybe pay you in the 60 minute increments because you may see a kid for 15 or 20, right? Or five minutes at a time. We'll pay you a monthly rate per student. We are gonna wanna see some progress because they're asking you know, the outpatient therapists in their network for progress. There's gonna have to be some progress. Like that doesn't necessarily mean You're on a medication and you're not, but it may mean other goals that are established over the course of maybe six months or a year. You're going to maybe have to coordinate. I I, I think this is important with either the primary care pediatrician or potentially other therapists. Um, I, I know of a lot of examples of the psychiatrists working for the insurance plans. I know one in New Jersey who said, you know, look, we have students who are dealing with medical issues or going through adolescence and not everybody's talking. And we had a student with um, anxiety, fatigue, depression, who turned out to have celiac. And once that was identified, um, started to feel better. And what yeah. we don't have is everybody talking. We had a lot of waste for that for that student and that family. I, I think a single case rate um, can work because it's simple enough. And, and it takes away some of the pressures on both school to have to bill. For services that can get really complicated, um, but there's going to be a lot of pressure on on a school district or a company to interact with the insurance plan. I would hope um, this is a bit of a hope that the insurers get out of the way, that they don't do co-pays, they don't require pre-approval, um, and that a lot of their efforts are more in the back end to review. Hey, after a year, you had a hundred kids, you achieve these goals let's adjust what we pay. I think that is a better model. But what happens in Jersey might be very different than what happens in Pennsylvania versus Massachusetts.
0: So if you're a school district, if you're someone from a school district listening to this podcast right now, um, the last thing you probably want to get involved in is like direct conversations with insurance companies. I'm guessing for those of you who who kind of feel differently, my apologies if you're at Commercial insurance enthusiasts, but uh, for those individuals, Brian, what are some of the? Are there two or three kind of like easy things that school district administrators can do to advocate for this type of coverage from insurance companies that you're mentioning? Kind of in your community? is it working through state organizations? Is it direct outreach? Like any, any thoughts there?
2: Um, first, I'd get a, a an understanding internally of what you have in your population of students, their profile, um, if you know what insurance they have. Is it through the state? Is it through Medicaid? Is it a commercial? If you can bifurcate that, if you have more information potentially on their on, on their anxiety diagnoses, any of that information can create a profile. I just think understanding your own pool and how you make an impact. Let's say you have, you know, 50 kids that you serve in your middle school who you've identified, whether or not they're on um, an IEP or not, that's separate. Uh, that you've identified that have mental health needs. They see a counselor, you know, they're they're often brought in and out of classes. Profile that and then show how you've made an impact. I do think the insurers want to see that you can do that in a faster, I think that would be the way to get their attention. I have this many kids in my cohort. We've made this impact in this amount of time. That will matter. And if you call the behavioral health companies, uh, the, the behavioral health directors inside the insurance plans, that will be one of the first things they ask for. How you, how you make an impact, um, how often you see the kids, um, how you staff that, what do you need? And, and I, I do think they will listen. They may ask of you, um, are you willing to be contracted with us and be licensed as a maybe not the school, but the companies that serve the schools, licensed as an outpatient service provider. And that's a whole complex path to go sure. to. But as a school system, knowing your population and how you're making an impact is a good start. Got it. Got it. That's helpful.
1: Well, this is a really complex issue that you know will not get solved in this podcast, but we really appreciate your perspectives, thoughts, and advice for our districts clearly there is a different set of guiding principles for commercial insurers and school districts. Uh, Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, it's often very transactional for uh, commercial insurances. Um, But I do want to, uh, because our time is short, I want to make sure that we discuss your journey as a healthcare and sociology columnist. And I'm curious what inspired you to start the behavioral health hour.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it started as a column lane in, in uh, in the Bergen record and my, that was one of my first jobs out of school. I was a stringer. That's another word for freelancer for a reporter. Um, so it wasn't a full-time job. And I remember raising my hand in the newsroom with, you know, mostly older reporters um, when someone said, you know, who wants to go cover this um, um, essentially for an obituary for a selectman who was younger, who had passed away. Their thought was that he had, um, you know, multiple mental health conditions. So this is 19, um, 1996, 97. I raised my hand. Who's this 23-year-old kid? Um, what they wanted was for me to go out and talk to the family. And so um, I was nervous but open to it, and no one else wanted to do it. And I, I think at that point I kind of learned, I got a real sense of what that family went through Um, I don't think there were a lot of stories at that time about mental health. And I tried to write it in a way that, look, this isn't um, this wasn't a choice. Um, This person dealt with addiction. Um, It was a chronic disease, had other mental health issues. And I um, started to see it from a different lens. Saw it from my own family growing up to a degree, but didn't understand it as a kid. And then Columbine hit. Um, And that was 98 if I'm remembering. And so I'm from there, I started to write this column and I called it the behavioral health hour um, first in newspapers. And then I, what I would say, it became, it's evolved in different forms over the years. The last 15, it's been essentially like a journal column website. Um, But it's evolved as, you know, my kids got older, you know, my wife and I had kids when we were late twenties. Now they're in school and growing up and seeing their path through, you know, Music and sports and education, and you know all of the changes in society and COVID. it's kind of been interesting to follow their path and my own with it. um and and in this what what are they called? I think the sandwich generation of you know you have your aging parents or guardians and you have your own kids, all of this and seeing my you know my parents and particularly my father, who is a source of wealth of stories about um his own behaviors. Um, You know, he walks into the shower with his hearing aids all the time and has to um, get new ones because he keeps forgetting. So I I think that the journal has become a good source of um, therapy for myself because I enjoy to write. But it allows to share perspective and stories of people who are wanting to make change. Um, In the intersection, I see a very common one of athletics and physical education, particularly in a middle school. Setting of, I mean, the power of that thirty minutes getting kids moving and running for their success the rest of the day, um, I think is pretty impactful. So this journal sort sort of stems from that and allows me to tell those stories.
0: That's great, Brian. You're also managing director of Berkeley Research Group, and I, I should share with the audience here that we've had the chance to to work with you guys. What uh, what's What's on your radar screen right now? And is there anything that's really particularly interesting uh, in your kind of behavioral health research with, with BRG that you'd like to share with the audience?
2: Well, I it's a good question. I would we've worked with more businesses um, in various ways, including healthcare investment companies who see a lot of potential in behavioral health, given there's more spending and coverage. And um, wanting to help expand it, expand access to care, or take a company in one city and expand it to other places. I I think that's been that is noble. Um, I think they see potential for, um, you know, improving an improving business situation to solve a lot of the issues we talked about. Um, you know, you you and, and at all points of behavioral health, from triage, which we talked about a little bit earlier, through outpatient maybe figuring out solutions for schools all the way to inpatient care. Uh, And, you know, the way that the behavioral health ecosystem has evolved, yes, there's more access to care and more triage, but that's only led to an increase in need for kids in particular, teenagers, young adults, dealing with addiction or eating disorders or mental health issues to be in a residential program. So, we're We're seeing companies from all points here. what is what is interesting to me is they're struggling to scale and maintain quality. Um, you know, think about it if you're running a school district. you know, if you have one school on one floor, um, fifteen students. Right? I think of our success early on at that at the school in Hartford with that limited pool. Um as you grow and you have new floors or new wings or new buildings and you just and your school system grows. Um, maintaining quality is difficult. And these healthcare businesses are struggling to staff it. You know, they're losing good people um, to, I mentioned the NCAA, to like other opportunities to serve mental health. They have a, um, I don't know if it's a healthy level of skepticism. I actually think it's too bad. Uh, Unwillingness many to work with Medicaid populations who have a, a ton of need. And some of that is simply the economics. Uh, so I think over the next five years, there'll be a lot of change in how these businesses evolve. Many have tried to work outside the health system and insurance. Many now are starting to do that. I would hope that they do a better job interacting with doctors and hospitals and families and capturing like the true um, diagnosis of patients. I, I'll say that like having I spent a lot of time talking to with medical directors. Who now work for insurance plans? So there's psychiatrists whose job it is to say, you know, should we cover this and for how long? And many tell me their frustration with therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists is not their intent. They're trying to do good work, but that they don't necessarily get the patient to goal fast enough, and they need to figure out a way to do that. And insurers want to help them, but that's really hard. Um, it's why I think mental health care in, in, in an earlier age in the school system could improve. I think these businesses are up for um, some challenges ahead because they're going to be asked to prove that they're making an impact, improve outcomes. And, sure. and that that will be interesting to see that unfold. Got it. Got
1: it. Brian, I, we've already stated that you're also a middle school uh, phys ed teacher. And so I'm curious mm. about, well, let me back up. I w- played field hockey from middle school through college. Oh. Uh, yeah, I was when I, I was also an equestrian in high school and middle school, but I played, you know, middle I played uh field hockey through college, and so obviously it's a fall sport. And I noticed there was a significant difference in my academic performance in the spring and the fall. (laughs) In the fall, when I was in season, we had mandatory study halls. We were constantly doing homework on the bus. I got that physical exertion Mm -hmm. out. And I know it was better for my mental health. Um, I don't know if I'm an anecdotal story. or I'm curious what you have seen or what your research has told you about, um, you know, how playing sports or being involved in physical education helps improve mental health. Um, as well as maybe academics for students. What do you think about that? Uh,
2: first of all, I agree, and that's great. And I love field hockey. I'm a big fan. The rules are hard, but I love the game. <laughs> by
1: um, the way, Jason Kelsey's wife and I had the same field hockey coach, just say. Oh,
2: okay. I'll have to, I'm <laughs> sure little my, my little wife probably knows this. <laughs> that is a fun fact. I, I, by the way, I cannot hit a field hockey ball. That is one of the more difficult things to do. I can dribble a basketball and sometimes hit a baseball. But I, so- Around oh three oh four, I started to well. Well, when I was starting youth coaching, I would pull parents, kind of, not really, more of it informal, because it was youth sports. Some of it was travel, and um, they had had frustrations with the rec programs, you know, your town programs, because kids would be lined up, whatever the sport. I think basketball and soccer are good analogs, and they would all just be standing in a line, and then the next person would go. Field hockey, you could do that too, you know, and it was one ball and a lot of standing. So I took this mentality, no, everybody has a ball. We're all going to be moving. You know, even with three and four-year-olds, you have my dad and I would coach the YMCA. We have hula hoops as the baskets. Everyone had a ball. It was chaos. Um, it was a lot of fun. And you'd see all the other teams out there, you know, of young kids with coaches in the line, looking at us with the hula hoops. Um, I think sports and coaches need to be more creative and get the heck out of the way. I mean, they're, particularly the youth travel programs, it is more about the parent. It is more about their other coaches and like let's get them to the AU level and then to college. And that is this so I started this study 16 years ago. Results are kind of coming out near term. Um it really shows the power of like a good rec program, which can be a school-based program where you're just teaching kids skills, having fun, everybody has a ball. It's organized but we're not teaching them zone defenses and um, things that maybe aren't, there is a role for those level of sports. One of my kids did it. It didn't work for her given other interests Uh, and it can work for other people. But the study I did showed a pretty big differentiation, in not just academic success, but social and emotional success and cost. Those in the rec group had, you know, like you, Lane, good academic scores, presenteeism, they weren't missing school, seemed to be healthier and happier. There were other measures we looked at. the In the competitive sports group, so you think travel, elite, premier, AAU, there was substance abuse, there was anxiety, there was dropping out, there were a, a lot of costs, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, so I, I, I think that the country has missed the boat on travel sports. I I don't think it's really the right path. I think there's a niche that can benefit from it, um, but I don't think it's necessary. Did Tom Brady ever pick, play you know football youth travel sports? I know that he didn't. Um, there's a lot of examples like that. So I'm a big proponent of physical education and particularly in the middle school elementary level that's just' more, more about getting the kids moving with those remember the old scooters that we used to sit on and roll around the gym with?
0: absolutely yeah yeah so that's fast sounds like fascinating research Brian we're excited to see the the results of that when they when they come out um, you've been incredibly generous with your time I think a final question we like to leave all of our guests with is what's in your go-to mental health toolkit what are the things that you do to stay kind of present and and grounded um well I'm
2: not I thought I was going to say something about affirmations because I think someone mentioned that to me. I'm not a um, Stuart Smalley person, though. I've probably done that at times. Like the day I got married, I probably did that. You're good enough Um, and kind enough and gosh darn it, people. Yeah, gosh darn it. I probably have done that before. I definitely did that on the day of my wedding. I can do this. Um, Now I played, though lately a little less, but um, I'm okay at basketball. That's what I played growing up. Play with a group of really good players. You played – you know, even division one level, like at, at Princeton, um, old coach Pete Carrell, who had the great backdoor plays and, you know, was ahead of his, you know, he's someone that now people look to as one of the great coaches. So I played with some of his players. Um, but it's comical to watch us now show up in the gym than 15 years ago. Cause we're everyone's 15 years older. So we have like, you know, cushions on our legs and straps and wraps and, um, people are getting injured just from the warm up. Um, but I love that it's movement, it's fun and it's good camaraderie. Awesome. Well, Brian, really appreciate your yeah. time
0: today. This is, this is great. Just thanks for sharing. You, you have, a uh, an incredibly kind of diverse and interesting background. You've done a ton of different things and, and, uh, it just sounds like you've really made kind of a, a huge impact in, in all of your work. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom and your time
2: with us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm, um. I enjoy listening to your, your show and, and all the great work you're doing at your, at your program and best of luck to you.
0: All right. So Lane, to wrap up for today, let's talk about what inspired us today. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say
2: I have like a huge
0: inspiring moment from this, this week, as I mentioned before, it's January. I, I find it a little bit hard to get inspired in the month of January, especially in the, you know, post your team is lost in the playoffs uh, type of type of world. Um, one one thing that was kind of funny the last couple of days that I, I think would be fun and inspiring if it happened is my, my daughter and I were watching Jeopardy together and she decided to like, you know, apply me for Jeopardy or go in and like, I took the little online quiz. So like, uh, I enjoyed that. I do enjoy Jeopardy. It made me reflect on how much I've enjoyed Jeopardy since I was a kid. Um, I'm quite sure I will not get selected to be on Jeopardy, but like you can always dream. I think that would be really, I think that'd be really, really, you know, uh, in- interesting and, uh, I think the biggest challenge on Jeopardy is probably mastering like the clicking system, right? I think even if you know kind of like the the questions, don't you have to have like a, isn't there a real science behind like the... The, the clicking and the timing of the
1: clicking and things like that. Funny, I'm not sure. That's so funny. I don't I don't know, but I will tell you. I just watched uh, the old classic movie White Man Can't Jump was on uh, in December, and glory Gloria finally gets on Jeopardy, and uh, I just love that scene. That whole scene where she's on Jeopardy, finally gets like you know vegetables that begin with Q or something. Uh, you know, but I I do uh, also appreciate Jeopardy um, as a kid growing up, having that even just be background noise or something. going on at jeopardy
0: totally. Totally. yeah my, my favorite jeopardy pop culture thing if you remember cheers the show on cheers and you yes had of course the, yeah. you, had, you had cliff the postman who got on jeopardy and like every every category was uniquely designed for him it was like bar trivia history of the postal service right like all these things that only he would know so uh all uh all all good stuff
1: I do love Will Farrell's rendition of uh, Alex Trebek on the on uh, SNL. On Sean yeah, Connery. Goes, had, uh, yeah, yeah. Me up. Yes, they crack me up when he That's has great. like Sean Connery on and um, Burt Reynolds. Those are hilarious. <laughs> But what inspired me this week? Um, I'll say, keeping with our sports theme too. My son was home for for college. I just took him back actually a little bit early because he's learning to be a referee. He's going to be refereeing intramural intramural sports uh, at his college, and so went back early to go get his referee training. And so he said, "Hey, it allows me to still be around soccer. He played soccer his whole life. Does not play in college, but gets him close to the sport." And I just thought that's really fun. Um oh, okay. I'm proud of him. It's exciting. Yeah.
0: That is that is fantastic. <laughs> he said he has a
1: newfound respect for how hard the job is now so it is that's,
0: it is <laughs> hard I, I, I used to umpire baseball in high school and, and it's like you get some angry parents coming at you right so I I may or may not have blown a couple of big calls back then so uh, I can you know 40 years of the, 40 years of the past I can safely kind of say that now so
1: he said one of the struggles is not only knowing the hand signals and all that and what the calls are but um you get wrapped up in watching the game you become a spectator and go oh that's right uh sorry. totally
0: sorry. Hey, I get to I get a, I get a call uh, hey, Lane, listen, good to, good to see you. Uh, glad we had the time to spend together here on another episode. Thank you to everybody who listened. And we hope that uh, the information today, in particular the commentary from our guest, Brian Cody, was helpful. And we will see you next time on another great episode of the MindBeat podcast. Okay. Thanks, everyone.
1: The MindBeat podcast is a production of Effective School Solutions. MindBeat represents the opinions of Duncan Young. Lane Whitaker and their guests on the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, the SAMHSA National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP or your local healthcare provider.